Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Well, here we are again, and I have an exciting um, new guest. Not new to me. He's an old friend of mine named Chris Lazaro. And today we're going to be discussing, um, I guess you could say, atheist, spirituality, materialists, physicalists. It all kind of flows in the same kind of vein. But even every um, atheist or person who adheres to this non-theist position um, has their own experience within that and uh that's what's so neat about chris is so willing to talk about it all the time um and then again with me i have cal Rivet, and uh cal has been well i've been on his podcast he's been on my podcast in some way because i ripped off his podcast for episode two with andrew Hronich. so cal um how about Cal, introduce yourself. That was, that was your podcast, though. I went. You you deserve the credit for that one. You set you set that nice. conversation up. Um, yeah, I'm I'm Kalia Rivet, Cal Rivet, Cal Rivet. There are many ways to say my name, all of them wrong. There's actually no correct way to pronounce my name. Just just to clear that up for everyone, I'm joking. Um, uh, but uh, uh, what 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 is there to introduce? I'm nobody. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have any qualifications. Um, I'm a speech therapist, so I'm qualified to diagnose and treat speech and language disorders, none of which we will be discussing here. In other words, I have no qualifications, um, but I'm an amateur theologian. So, so there we go. And philosopher. I think he's an amateur philosopher, far, far better philosopher than I am. And Chris is probably better than all of us, but it's okay. Um, anyway, philosophical theologian, yeah, for sure. In other words, if you if you look at theologians in terms of like theologian theologians versus the philosophically minded people who are somewhat irre- irreverent and given to really like fine grained propositional analysis, I am in the latter camp because before that, really, I mean, in a way that will not make sense to people who are focused on credentials. I know more about philosophy than I know about speech therapy. I know far more about it. That's not to say I'm an expert. No, I mean, it's not to say that there aren't credentialed people with philosophy who know far more than uh, credentialed people, you know, in philosophy who know far more than I do. But I'm, I'm just saying that that's that's my true background. Um, if we leave credentials out. So, Cal, how about you tell us a little bit about your? I like the the phrase spiritual heritage, and then um, where are you at now? Cal. Did I say Cal? I did. Yeah, that's fine. Because I'm a speech therapist. So 
people have a hard time with difficult names, so I've got to use the easy name. Um, uh, I was raised Hare Krishna, um, which is um, it's kind of Hinduism. See, I got my my baby son here. He's he's interested in what I'm doing, and um, so forgive me for being distracted. Um, Hare Krishna is a kind of Hinduism, um, but it's kind of proselytizing. It's open to converts, which most forms or many forms of Hinduism are not, although Hinduism is just an incredibly sort of big umbrella that doesn't of itself signify a whole lot, right? Um, so I was raised Hare Krishna, uh, which is, people think I'm saying Christian when I say Hare Krishna, but it's not Christian. It's like very, very different. Um, and then when I was about 16 years old, I was like, well, you know, I'd like to believe in this God stuff, but it doesn't appear very scientific, reflecting the fact that I had a somewhat fundamentalist mindset in the way that I approached spiritual matters, um, which is kind of like what it's a non-spiritual in its way too. It's a non-spiritual approach to spirituality. Um, and um, this is kind of mechanistic and linear and um, um, anyway, but um, so for 14 years after that, didn't really have propositional religious belief. Around 28, I was kind of tentatively and existentially Christian sometimes. Um, but then at age 30, I'm 32 now, but at age 30, I kind of had, um, oh, I, 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 did, I did take psychedelics and um, that, that, but that in and of itself did not change my mind about anything. It did increase my desire to uh, delve into certain topics it did not of it it did not of itself change let's say my propositional mindset regarding beliefs x y or z um and um but then then i sort of rediscovered the the work of another autodidact philosopher far better than i um christopher langan um and his cognitive theoretic theoretic model of the universe uh, Christopher Langan, for people who like to impute guilt by association, is very, it's very cancelable. If you look at the totality of his online statements, you'll find much in there to cancel him for. Um, I am not. Uh, uh oh, I think Peter just disappeared. Um, I am not um, wedded to 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 the political side of what he believes, nor even all of the philosophical side, because. For, if only for the reason that I don't fully understand all of it. Um, but what I did read from him really, um, really changed my mindset. Um, and um, in, in particular, it, it um, replaced my sort of my materialism, my naturalism with this kind of idealistic supernaturalism. That's, I mean, like the, the, the way he expresses himself and and handles these issues um, is is really um, is, is really remarkable. I, in terms of technical philosophers, I have not seen his equal. That being said, as a result of the journey that he himself placed me on, I have a rather different conception of God than than he seems to have. So I'm not I'm not exactly putting him out there as some kind of guru. Um, Although I am saying that he, again, he's, he's actually the best technical philosopher I've ever seen personally. Um, 
So um, that that's that's the answer to that question. Excellent. Well, although it seems that we have uh, lost our host, uh, we will we can continue on. Um, yeah, I just wrote his name down. Uh, I, I'll look into him because I'm curious. I'm curious to you know read and maybe listen to more about uh you know because your your experience is very interesting to me, um, and I guess I can talk a little bit about my my background while we wait for Peter. Um, so I grew up Catholic, and I know that uh, that's a kind of a it's kind of like the old narrative, right? You, you grow up and you're, you're born and raised Catholic. Um, and every, eventually a lot of people in my experience at least uh, fade away from Catholicism um, and maybe become more secularist or maybe they find other branches of Christianity to, to join. But I grew up Catholic. I went through you know, my first communion and got confirmed when I was in high school. Um, so, after I had done all that, um, I, I never really believed what I was learning. You know what I mean? I went through all of the lessons of Christ Christianity, so to speak, um, as young as like seven years old. Um, and it just never resonated with me. I, I'd say around like the sixth grade when I was like 12 years old, going on 13, I started kind of like, maybe, maybe it's just because I didn't like going to to church because the Catholic Church is very rote and repetitive. Yes, Peter. Oh, Peter's back. So, like I was saying, when I, you know, I went through all the, the um, I guess, starting at age seven, all the way up to you know being a senior in high school, all the you know Catholic sacraments. Um, but it never, I never, it never really truly resonated with me. It was more or less the the action of going to to church and and maybe my disinterest in that action, doing something that I didn't really want to do because it wasn't. I didn't find it fun. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of kids don't find going to Catholic mass fun, um, and that's I kind of lost interest in that. Um, so maybe that was my first inclination of no longer becoming believe, you know, being a Catholic at the very least and then a Christian, not being a Christian. Um, during, as I was previously saying, during, you know, middle school, I started questioning, you know, why, why would I believe, why would I believe in a met, uh, an overarching metaphysical being that has a hand in absolutely everything? Um, and I started really questioning that. And then I, I hear other people's dogmas and I never really, I guess, bought into it. So I, I had held that view um, from as young as, you know, 13 all the way through. And I was really into politics too. So it was kind of, it's it's like the perfect storm of being into politics and being into, uh, I guess, trying to shed away your previous Catholic teachings it, as you become your own person. Um, that's where I found philosophy. I actually, in college, when I was doing my undergraduate, um, I was, you know, into, into mostly political science. I was like, oh, that's really cool in history. And I took a philosophy class and I, and I was sold. I said, this is what I've been looking for. I've been looking for, you know, schools of thought that can give me answers about uh, my reality, whether it be socially or metaphysically, et cetera. Um, but just as uh, before, we, before we move on, just as Cal said, I'm, I'm nobody. I, <laughs> I, 
um, I'm, I'm amongst therapists, school therapists, I, I believe. Um, I'm an occupational therapist rather than speech therapist, but um, that's my only, I guess that's my only credential. So I have no credentialing. I, I did get a minor in philosophy that I pride myself on, but a minor in philosophy isn't, isn't enough to uh, credential me to really be an objective voice. Um, but I think everybody, everybody has the, the right to, to think and to um, be philosophical at the very least. That's the, I think, <clears throat> you know, the purpose of my podcast isn't really to talk to experts. It's really, because really anybody can be an expert of their own experience, you know? And um, I think that's ultimately what I'm interested in. And um, so, yeah, what I was going to say about Chris before I accidentally uh, outed myself and then brought myself back, I hope, hope the, re the recording worked. But anyway, um, <laughs> um yeah, I was going to say about Chris is that um, he's really a thoughtful person and um, it's funny, like he's one of those people that like, and, uh, and I think we all kind of know these people, they, I think they act like a Christian, but doesn't prescribe to a Christian, like he almost lives like a Christian in a lot of ways, he has a lot of self-control, he has a lot of um, patience very compassionate kind and empathetic so i think it's really neat um and it's going to be interesting hearing how that plays with your worldview um because that's kind of part part of our discussions have often been like okay well what is the impetus for acting the way you do what is the impetus for why do you want to take care of kids with autism or you know care for people so much where, where does that love come from Man, I've often said, kind of tongue in cheek, like if I were you, and I believed like you did, I'd probably live like a hedonist. You know, <laughs> but you, you deny that hedonism is the good way to live. Which, kudos to you. Anyway, yeah, continue on with your story. Um, tell us more about experiences you had, and how your philosophy, how philosophy kind of changed your life and your mindset in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, that's a lot. That's a loaded question. Um, and there's a lot to talk about. Uh, but but first, I want to thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate that. Um, and I know and I and I don't know if we'll get to this earlier, if we'll get to this later on about uh, the issue of morality, at least from the, you know, the, the theological and the um, secular context. Um, but I guess I guess I can talk a little bit about, you know, my background in philosophy, at least the only six classes I took and how maybe that shaped my worldview. Um, I'd taken a, an ethics course. Um, so we learned about Aristotle, uh, Nemoclatian ethics. We learned about, uh, we did Nietzsche, Beyond Good and Evil, which I did, I did read, I did go beyond to read that whole book. And that, I mean, that's, that was fascinating. Um, definitely not all true. Nothing Nietzsche says is all true, but uh, it was very interesting. Um, Kant, we went over Kant's uh, categorical imperative, and then the uh, utilitarians. Um, so we'll get into ethics. And then I, I also took a class on language and ethics where we read, uh, you know, Austin and a bunch of others, Claudina Rakeen. And that's where I kind of started to get into postmodernism, I have to say. I started really getting into how language shapes our realities. Um, and that was, that was incredibly interesting. 
so I do I delve deeper into that. Um, and then we get into like, the, you know, ontological postmodernism, uh, deconstructionism, where we're looking at like tearing apart uh, epistemological narratives about how we see the world. So that one includes, you know, a uh, the idea of the Christian God, so to speak. Um, and that, and I want to be clear that 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 includes all epistemological narratives. That includes Karl Marx's account for history. That includes Freudian psychology, even um, dark matter. I mean, can be the the concept of dark matter that physicists are playing with. I mean, you can you can go all the way into science, which we which we tend to really hold to be an objective truth, and you just tear it apart and you look at how culture in psych, the human psychology and what, what you know, our perceptions want us to think and want us to see in, in accordance to the greater so, sociological realm. Um, and I, I just just couldn't get enough of that because it just seemed so evident to me and so, and so clear to me that, you know, oh, everything that I you know, tend to believe doesn't necessarily have to be an absolute truth. Um, and then you fall into a little bit of solipsism, just like just like Descartes did, you know, I think therefore I am. And you kind of you pull your way, you pull your way back out of it. You look at every apple in the bucket and you determine if it's a good apple or a bad apple. And I think everybody does that process, um, or at least everybody who's trying to be reflexive and thoughtful um, and trying to find a truth for themselves, I, I believe should do. Um, that's kind of my background in philosophy and how I got into at least the the post the philosophical piece um never mind reading about you know science I, I i always joke that i don't like i don't like storybooks and i say that in air quotes i don't like novels i don't like uh fiction um i only read really i only buy or read three types of books they're like philosophy books on like postmodernism and existentialism and those kinds of things i read books about um morality and how that's related to natural selection and i read books about physics that's all i read it's, it's kind of crazy, but that's all I care to read um, because I want an answer of everything, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's my, I guess that's my background in philosophy. And maybe hopefully that, you know, let me know, Peter, if that opened, or Cal, if that opened up more questions. Well, I, I kind of actually wanted to backtrack a little bit um, because before we get into like the more of the abstract ideas, got to talk more about you because you're the title of this, this podcast episode. <laughs> um, I guess looking back at your life, are there any experiences that were difficult to explain or um, that, or just like, you know, throughout your life, have there been moments in your life while this is like, there's something, there's something that appears to me, something metaphysical about this that, that seems like it can't be explained. And you know that it doesn't have to be like you had this crazy trance dream or something, but I mean, I'm thinking even throughout like your work that you do working as an occupational therapist, like when you're working with certain kids and whatnot, it must be, yeah, I, I experienced this myself, like, or even with my children or whatnot, you have these moments where you're like, wow, this is like too, too, it, there's something really beautiful about this. There's the, the beautiful and the good, right. Um, that you experience. And, and I think, you know, spirituality can be something as simple as that. It's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily have to be all the time like these crazy like almost like psychedelic experiences but i think i think we almost create these false dichotomies between the secular and the spiritual you know and and um 
when there's really the sacred is within the mundane. And I think that's what a lot of mystics try to teach us, you know? So, I mean, just speaking from your own experiences, tell us, um, I don't know, tell us as much or as little as you want to. Perfect. Um, yeah, I think um, I liked what you said. The sacred is in the mundane. I like that a lot. Um, well, let me start with, uh, I guess I can define I guess my sense of spirituality and I guess move from there, or at least how I interpret it. Um, I, I take a secular position on spirituality and I, and I wrote about it in my, uh, my published article. Um, I got it published last year in November in Occupational Therapy and Mental Health, where I try to um, describe or define what's spiritual suffering. And for that, you need a definition of spirituality. And I wanted it to be um, secular so that it can be used across religions across beliefs and for for a profession you know i think it should be relatively secular with acknowledgement to the religious um but essentially just like what you've said peter um to me and what i would like to define at least for the profession of occupational therapy is that spirituality um is a subjective experience and it's also an experience that appeals to the feeling of belonging um that to me, that's that is the crux of what spirituality is. So, what, like you like you said, about spending time with your kids or spending time with students, the there are feelings of awe, and I and I have experienced those where you where you're working with a student, something just clicks, and they just do something exactly the way you taught them, and they and they become more functional human beings that can go and you know live live the lives that they want and need, and you're just like, wow, I did something. You know, I I'm a part of their greater mission, their greater purpose. Um, I have experienced that during camping trips in, in Boy Scouts where you're around the fire and just laughing and then you, you, you stop and you look around and you're like, wow, this is it. You look at it and the stars are there. And, and really, and there's something primitive about that. And I don't mean primitive as in, you know, um, like, he, I guess heathenistic, barbaric. I mean, innately human about being in groups of people around a, a campfire looking up at the stars. There's, there's something innately human about being in collaboration with people participating with others. And that's where I guess o, OT and philosophy kind of click on a more, I guess, emotional level. Um, I guess another experience, and I think it's the experience you were alluding to, was uh, a dream that I had. It was very crazy. Um, I, I had I'd previously been getting sleep paralysis and it wasn't it's not a pleasant thing. If you've ever experienced sleep paralysis, it's not great. Um, your body freezes up because you wake up right at your REM cycle. So once, once your REM cycle kicks in, it releases a neurotransmitter that kind of numbs your body. So, and, and so your body's numbed, so you don't kick. And that's, that's restless leg syndrome. Restless leg syndrome is the opposite of sleep paralysis. You're sleeping and you're kicking versus you're frozen and awake. And when you're awake, you, you get these de delusions that, that can come to you. It could be loud noises, humming, train whistles. And sometimes you see big, black, scary figures that, that move in a weird way. And the mind does that to wake the body up and say, oh, like you, this isn't right. Like, There's something wrong here. Like, get out. Um, but I, I, this may have been my first experience of sleep paralysis or at least a, a dream in which I was coming out of it. I don't really know. But I I'd woken up. My body was, was frozen as if in sleep paralysis, but I didn't have any of the noises or other symptoms. And in my room, like very clearly, a cloud appeared and a face came out of the cloud and it was lightning, just very Zeus-like. 
Um, and it was a big booming voice. Why don't you believe in me? That's what it said. Why don't you believe in me? And I woke up and I, I felt that, you know, maybe, maybe another person would say, wow, God came to me. I need to follow him. I need to, I need to do what I should do. But the, the only thought I had was that's how the Bible was through experiences like that. And I said, and I, and I was very, I was kind of happy that I experienced that because I, I was able to say to myself, oh, that's, I understand the burning bush better now. I understand the, you know, all, all of this. So um, I guess that was my most metaphysical experience with, with a potential deity that I decided not to, you know, believe to be true. Um, and then I, I have had those, um, I guess, feelings of community that I define as spirituality. Very cool. Cal, do you have anything you'd like to add or comment or question? Um, the, the business with the dream, I mean, there's so much in everything that you said, but I'm just going to kind of pick at it sort of discursively because I have like ADD or whatever. But, you know, that God, I, I, I don't believe in that God either. In other words, that's not God. If, if God was... If God, if the nature of God is such that he's, he's the big cop in the sky and he's laying down the law so that you do what he wants, I'm saying that God manifestly does not exist, that, that God has, has removed himself. Um, he, is, he is not smiting the atheists who, who curse his name on the street. So what it means is that whatever God's nature is, it's not coercive. Um, at least not as we experience him, you know, in our mode of experience. So, you know, like that, that seems to me, sleep paralysis, I'm extremely familiar with sleep paralysis, so much so that um, it's caused uh, me to wonder if I um, have a kind of mild narcolepsy. Um, I think that, um, that being said, a lot of my experiences with it have not been on the paranormal side, actually very few, considering the extreme frequency with which it's happened to me. Um, but I'm inclined to think that that is a kind of manifestation of your unconscious, that you, you feel in yourself some desire to, let's say, submit or acquiesce to a divine authority, quay authority, but then you also reject it rightly because you know, I, you see in the Bible that they basically they get out of this view of God. First, it's very transactional, where God is both God is both the person who rewards and the one who punishes. And if you don't do what he wants, you get punished in this life by God. And you eventually come to realize that, well, look, uh, whether God is righteous or holy or not, it is not the case that the 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 wicked receive their just desserts in this life always and so then that's when you sort of get the notion of an afterlife um i think in the new testament too if you ask me you get away from the idea that god is the one who punishes although not entirely don't entirely get away from it. but you have the notion that god is the father of lights in him there is no darkness um in other words it's sort of open and, and, and you see also the true character of god supposedly um it in, in jesus christ um 
And if that is the case, Jesus Christ says, forgive your enemies. We don't imagine God per se having this kind of strict um, punitive or disciplinarian attitude, but rather that that function is handled by the accuser. So the worst God does is, is to abandon you to yourself slash to the devil and then sort of let you reap the consequences of, of, of your sin, which, which is death. Although, what does death mean? You know, because you talked about what's, what's primitive and, and talk about being under the night sky and around the campfires. Like, yeah, I understand primitive in that sense. It also seemed to me that this, I, this tendency to merge one's identity with, it, with that of another person, to feel, to, 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 to move up to ever higher levels of psychological integration, such that you are you know, joined in your identity with, with those around you and you, their projects are your projects, their values are your, your values. To me, that is, let's say, axiologically primitive or, or ontologically primitive even by which I mean irreducible. It cannot be given in terms of anything more fundamental because that is fundamental reality. That is ultimate reality. That is God. God is every one of us in some sense. I couldn't really say that I'm God, but I think there is a sense in which allowable sense in which I could say God is me. Um, um, I don't know if that totally makes sense to people. The Kabbalists have an idea that God is the only reality. Um, on, this, on the primary level of reality, God is all that exists. In terms of the experience of God, very often it's it's you know it's 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 seeing the unity in things such that you don't know where God ends and you begin because all you, all you, all you, all you see is God. It's not that you're over here and God's over there, uh, because every time you have a division of some kind, you have a more fundamental medium underlying the binary division. That's something I learned from Christopher Langan. I learned much of this from Christopher Langan. Um, it's not explicit in him, but it's very much the, it, 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 it's, it's, it's the proximate entailment of his, of his premises such that it's not really me elaborating on it. It's, it's him. It's his, it's his axiology. It's his, well, although I don't think we draw the same ultimate conclusions, but, but um, that, that is to say valuation is self-identification. Um, and that what we what we what we see and perceive and and move toward in every act of valuation, we're reaching, striving. It is it is the image of self slash God, where where self and God kind of converge. Um, uh, this is a lot of deep stuff in here, but you know, basically, Chris Verlangen's work, you get the idea of an item potent ultimate reality. That is, it's a it's a kind of operation that begins with itself and ends with itself. Everything within it inherits this property so that for you and me and everyone in God, a kind of solipsism is in effect. And see, this, um, uh, well, see, anyway, I, I move on too many tangents and because and of the sleep disorder and the ADD, I sometimes forget where I was supposed to land. But, um, uh, yeah, well, you can just jump in at any point here because I saw you oh, writing no, stuff down. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I want, I'm just taking little notes here because um, what you what you say does resonate with me quite a bit. Um, that merger of identity. I mean, that's 
I mean, we can just start with the merger of identity um, between, I mean, that's just communicative, you know, like the, when you, when you're talking to somebody or you're having that, that form of agreement and um, self-discovery together, it's, it's almost metaphysical. I mean, I mean, ontology is a branch of metaphysics, but it's, it's the creation of being on the two parts. And that's, I mean, we have a model in OT called the OPH, doing, being, belonging, becoming, um, where through participation, right, through doing in the physical world, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, German philosopher of the 20th century, has a word for that Dasein, being in the world, where we are always interpreting, we're always in the world. And, and when you're interacting with another person, you are affirming that other person's existence always. And when, when you're affirming it, you're creating that merger that I, I feel you're talking about, at least Correct. on a, on a temporal level here. And, and if I can break Peter's ground rules by interjecting, but please, that's what I, one of the points I was trying to make um, is that the affirmation of one's identity, one's highest identity, most integrated level, not a false or lower level. Mm. You don't love a rock star by enabling his self-destructive lifestyle. You love him by affirming his him and his true identity, where, where he's most integrated. And death is the negation of your identity. So we talk about the wages of sin is death, and then later that 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 theologically develops into hell. But is what it's being discussed there is not physical annihilation, nor is it mere endless torture for its own sake. I would argue, this is talking about the negation of a false or lower level of your identity. Um, and uh, and it, it's through this sort of creative destruction that actually God creates us, I would, would submit. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so you talk about affirming identity as creative of the individual, 100%. That's, what, that's how God creates. God is love. So is the, the in, let's, I guess we can talk about what God is, what God means, because I think that's, I mean, that's the kind of the grounding. I mean, the, the God that, I mean, you described to me, at least what I'm hearing, is the, the God of Spinoza, right? Like, it sounds very, well, maybe I'm looking at your face. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not pantheistic, but to me, it sounds more like. Oh, okay. I, I see what, I see what you're saying. See where I'm going? Creator, creation, identification. Yes. Look, look, if, if, if God is a consciousness in whom we live in, move in, God is consciousness and a consciousness. He's infinite, which means he's the interplay of the infinite and the finite, because that's what the infinite is, which also means you use a word to define a word when you're defining the infinite, which a lot of people see as inadmissible. But if it were the case, that ultimate reality could be reduced to something more fundamental than itself, then it wouldn't be ultimate reality. So that's just what you got to live with. Um, but um, so God, let's say God is a consciousness in whom we live and move and have our being thing about consciousness and its contents is on one level, it stands separate from its contents. On another level, it is its contents. Always sort of undefinable, but, but envisaged as a kind of limit of theological accuracy has been the, the notion of panentheism, okay? Mm -hmm. Where God is imminent and transcendent. So I am definitely stressing the imminence of God. Well, I think, again, I learned it from Langan. The, 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 the guy is a complete genius, if you ask me. Um, and um, if we can talk about, you know, Nazis like Heidegger, I hope we can talk about people whose opinions are not uh, kosher to, to most people. But um, 
he said, God is the universe. And then where people's minds go when they hear that statement is, oh, God is everything physical. What Langan means by universe is God is everything real. When you pay attention to that, the set of all things real must be a member of itself in order itself to be real. What we have here is self-inclusion, not in terms of conventional set theory, because that doesn't allow for it. You need a different understanding of self-inclusion, a different muriology, a different branch of philosophy that de deals with part-whole relations to begin to articulate some sense uh, of self-inclusion, which permits a, a, a set of all sets to include itself. But that is what Langan means. And actually, the muriology that allows for that is that of consciousness itself. Like I said, where it stands separate from its contents on one level, on another level, it is its contents. That works through self-reference. That's kind of tall weeds. No one won't necessarily go there. But um, uh, the so the real universe contains everything, including itself. That makes it imminent and transcendent. So I am stressing heavily the imminence of God in the way that maybe conventional theologians would not. Um, a difference between me and Spinoza is his heavily impersonal and deterministic understanding of ultimate reality. I hold to neither. Yeah, and that's like I said, that was my my thought because if something to me, the infinite and the finite, I mean, they're in a way they're false dichotomies. I mean, definitionally, no, but like I guess objectively, in a way, if we're saying something is finite and if infinite, why does the dichotomy even have to matter? So that's why I thought of Spinoza, because Spinoza did talk about, I guess, this in, this total infinity, right? You know, you know what I mean. Um, but I want to go back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Spinoza was was clearly incredibly advanced in the way that he understood ultimate reality and its its associated myriology. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say otherwise. Um, you know, like you said, dualisms are tricky. When you get you get stuck in labels, then there's always a qualification because everything inherits the nature of ultimate reality, which is to be infinite. That is to allow for predication of mutually exclusive um, predicates. This dialethia, uh, you know, it's it's both itself and its opposite. Uh, you know, the, everything upon analysis admits of that kind of you know dialectical you know uh, pushing to some next level where you know began with premise a and then you end up negating it so absolutely um and i want to talk about that that dichotomy piece um first first i'll defend martin heidegger he was he was a nazi <laughs> way before way before like in the 30s and then he renounced it he went and lived in the woods so for for those listeners who listen to this um <laughs> the the philosophy of Martin Heidegger does when, not when include... did he renounce it he renounced it yes no when when did he renounce oh it? when uh when probably when Hitler came to power he he only liked it because it was going against that status quo he was because Martin Heidegger hated institutions hated institutions and and you know big government and all those things he was very he's very much like uh you know go off in the woods, kind of go do my own thing, like get away from technology. That is that uh, is true. I mean, I mean, the thing is one one can't help but wonder um whether someone who is, is able to join the party, you know, has has such uh, friendly feelings toward toward Jews, or if that played any if his you know changes any changes in his attitude toward the Jewish people played any role in his sort of change of change of heart I don't, I don't know but 
I'm, I'm, I was just, yeah. But yeah, if you if you feel the need to kind of rehabilitate him, you know, that's that's fine. You know, I mean, I'm not the kind of person that it's like, oh, I read something, it's like that's it, you can't touch them. It's like it means nothing to me. Absolutely, um, I just I just wanted to make that clear. But um, with the God consciousness bit, the um, it sounds a lot to me like the ontological argument, you know, where where something is in itself and for itself at the same time. You know what I mean? It, it, um, I mean, the ontological argument states that um, because I can only picture of the most perfect being, there's no greater being than God. Um, and because I can picture it in my mind, it is, it is you know, there must be. Um, well, I, I, have, I have not yet begun to make, let's say, arguments, although in ontological arguments, there are many. And many of them are quite dubious. You know, for example, Anselm's, uh, you know, being than whom none greater can be conceived. You can exactly mimic that line of argumentation with the sandwich than which none more immediately present can be perceived. And if the argument works, you should be able to get like a sandwich immediately present in front of you. And it doesn't, but you don't. And that's how you know it doesn't work. If, if people always disagree on why it failed. Um, that it fails, everyone seems to agree. Now, other ontological arguments, um, you know, I, I suppose I could offer some, but but um, uh, you know, like uh, I, I hope maybe maybe you're just saying like I see a similarity. Maybe you are saying that you see a similarity. I see similarity. That I said, yes. to, to to ontological arguments, I would want to clarify. I'm not really, I haven't made one at least not yet. <laughs> no, just a similarity. No, no, yeah, I, you haven't made an argument. Um, more or less a comparison. Um, because I mean, because what I was understanding about God and God and consciousness was that God, and you can correct me because I'm trying to understand here too, is that you know all things real. God is a consciousness that operates as a consciousness and is a conscious in, and is within a consciousness. Is that am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I would say God is being and a being. God is consciousness and a consciousness. Mm -hmm. So he's instantiated in himself. In other words, we exist in God's mind, but it's mm -hmm. not like God exists in some more absolute backdrop, background space. God exists in God's mind too. There is no absolute vantage point outside of ultimate reality, you know, um, any more than you can divide uh, a, a circle circumference uh, by, by its diameter and get something other than pi. You think you can, but you can't. Right, right, right. And that's, I guess that's what I was thinking. I guess that's, that was my comparison is, is that that explanation sounds, I guess, in a priori, in itself, you know, like almost, I get almost like that, that ontological argument where definitionally God, God as a definition is a conscious being and is, and is consciousness. And to me, that creates this kind of tautology, you know, and, and I and I could be wrong in thinking that, but, you know, it's to me. Tautology I, is necessary when you discuss ultimate reality, because if they could reduce it to something more fundamental than itself, it wouldn't be definitionally the ultimate reality. Again, that's something, I mean, it's, it's uh, Christopher Langan, it's not easy to understand, um, but, but, but these ideas are very, very well expressed. Is in his work better better than I uh, expressed. Well, the, I I, I want to look into him because I find I find it really interesting. I mean, and that's I guess that's what I'm saying is 
ultimate reality. I mean, is that, and I, I'm not, Peter, if you want to get us back on track somewhere, we can do that. Um, but ultimate reality, I mean, to me, to me, what is, what is ultimate reality other than a tautology of definitions? You know, like mm -hmm. it sounds- That's exactly what it is in the CT, in, in, in Langan's theory, the CTMU, yeah. So if it's, so if it's just a tautology, so to me, I keep saying to me, right? Um, but if all, if everything is a tautology of, defi of definitions, everything yeah. just means itself. You know what well, I mean? Well, ultimately- two equals, two equals two equals two equals two, but that, to, I, I guess there's no, for me, there's no grounding for that. It just well, kind of floats wait, wait, wait. there. You know yeah, I mean? no, 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 wait. So, so the thing is, um, if it is a tautology, you know, it's like, remember Heidegger being in time, he mm -hmm. ends up giving these, these, um, these, um, these tautologies on which he cannot elaborate further being it, it gives itself. Well, of course it does. Uh, and, 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 um, uh, the, the question is whether and why that should be efficacious in terms of understanding the relentlessly intelligible reality that surrounds us. You know, I, I talked about this with a friend, the conversation unfortunately no longer exists, but on YouTube, but, um, um, you know, he was saying, isn't this all just word games? It's like, yeah, is math just word games? It might be word games, seems to work. So, you know, the, the, the thing about it is if you, if you have something which in theory is just word games, oh, a huge problem. Yeah, except that it, it works in terms of making reality intelligible. In fact, it's like the nece logically necessary structure of a self-intelligible reality. And so if your premise is that word games should not work, it's like we need to go to the to the drawing. I don't mean yours, like you personally, but I'm just saying if one's premise is that word games should not work, but they work as a matter of observation, and but not just observation, as a matter of logical necessity, you know, then that that's 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 a kind of problem. That's a problem with the starting premise. That's not really a problem with reality. No, I agree. I agree that language can't be the the end all end all be all because. And and I I've been listening to uh, are you familiar with Lawrence Krauss the physicist I, a... I am no the, the the thing is for for Lang and language is the end all be all God is a self configuring self processing language um, oh, and, and 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 any self configuring self processing language is 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 necessarily mental in character um, and that you know God is the answer so in other words ultimate reality is a is a mind and God is the answer we give uh, in response to the question of whose mind. That, that that's almost a direct quote is that in is that in before i go back to that that piece um is that in congruence with like david chalmers like the like panpsychism is that kind of yes that? okay yeah yeah um okay. uh, my understanding of language uh, of langan is that he is he, he believes in some kind of panpsychism yeah actually a very very thoroughgoing kind so in order to have so i guess to me in order to have that um that be true and i and i think that that would be great if god was the was the consciousness consciousness but we need to define consciousness i mean that's where that's where um all the physicists are working that's where all the biologists are working and that's where i guess there's a lot out there that says that panpsychism falls flat because it, well, it only defines things as consciousness and bits like i am more conscious than this mug but this mug is also consciousness i mean consciousness would need to be a, a 
uh, element. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. Well, okay. So the, the the thing is, physicists are struggling to define consciousness in, in terms of something more fundamental than consciousness. They're wedded to positions of, let's say, ontological naturalism, which hold that consciousness is not like the fundamental medium of reality. If you hold that it is, effectively, you are saying that consciousness cannot be defined in terms of anything more fundamental. Consciousness is that sort of element which, which gives itself and, and, and is defined in terms of itself. Now, again, if you're actually operating from a different paradigm, you're going to work and struggle to come up with some definition of consciousness that successfully reduces it to something more fundamental than consciousness. So I'm not surprised that they're struggling, um, but I'm, I'm also saying that that's not really a problem that would be faced by, you know, uh, ontologies which take consciousness as their starting point. Um, now, regarding panpsychism and its associated are they even problems or like you're going to say something is more conscious than something else? I mean, I wouldn't even say like a, a mug is more or less conscious than I. Let's say it's conscious in a different way. Um, I mean, how to put it is a mug, if we take physicalism, is a table less physical than I? Um, uh, I, I wouldn't say so. Um, it has a different structure. That's what I would say. No, I agree. I agree. I, I don't like panpsychism. It doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, <laughs> I no, I do like panpsychism. And I, and, I, yeah. and I'm saying that that um you know we disagree, but I I'm, I'm saying that yeah, I'm saying that on I, I wouldn't really view the question of whether a mug oh, is that less definition of panpsychism. I, I understand any more problematic than the question of is a table less physical than than I am on a physicalist frame. It's like no, they're equally physical. Mm -hmm. Me and and, and and you know the, the 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 mug and I would theoretically be equally conscious, but the the question is we're talking about structure. So what's the structure? Mm -hmm. I see. So if so, we're looking at panpsychism, right? Which means that there that means everything is conscious, right? How would and that it wouldn't be a corporeal that that definition of consciousness that would maybe be found or not found would it have to be corporeal or no in your in your view? Well, so if you're talking about an idealistic frame, we're no longer working within the sort of Cartesian binary of corporeal and incorporeal. And, you know, that this is difficult to talk about. I have to try to see if I can sort of get my faculties together because, you know, I always end up talking about these things, but sort of at different times and different contexts. And I'm conscious of having said it better at other times, but it gets a little bit dialectical, as all binaries do. Um, if you begin with mind, so you know predicates are on their complements. Like mind is understood in reference to not mind. Typically, the not mind is is the matter, right? And so there's a sort of immediate question which arises when you say everything is mind, which is like, if everything is mind, then maybe nothing is mind, because we seem to have kind of, um, we have potentially emptied that, that predicate of meaning by, by depriving it of a complement. Okay. So the, the, the question is, is it, or what's clear is that if you say everything is mind, then mind is somehow serving as its own complement, its own, its own negation. You can, I mean, you can call it mind or you can call it something else, but ultimate reality is something that, well, it is, it is 
it is self-intelligible. That is to say, it's behaving like a mind. It's cognizing itself. It's performing operations on itself, which render it comprehensible to itself. In this kind of open-ended and, and uh, inf infinitely self-referential way. Um, and um, uh, that, that means it, it, that, it, that it has within it, it, it has the resources to function as its own backdrop or complement or negation. And um, actually, again, the way that that works is, is through a kind of self-reference, which, which gives it a dialectical character. So it's like, you know, mind, thesis, matter, antithesis, and then you're going to get a synthesis, which is something else, but then from, you know, uh, you know, from, from, from the same element, essentially, because there's, there's nothing other than ultimate reality to work with, ultimately, you know, there's, you're going to get something that comes up as a, as a kind of antithesis, and then, you know, the, the process is going to repeat. So you can kind of quibble about words and, and, uh, and, and, you know, say like, if everything is mine, then nothing is mine. But, but the, the end result is whatever word you start with is something which understands itself, which kind of looks more like a mind than not a mind. So that's why I like idealism as a sort of a first approximation, you know, the position that everything is mine, but I'm aware of the need to, to qualify and explain certain, certain things that inevitably arise whenever you're dealing with something that is sort of by its nature uh dialectical so if i'm under if i'm understanding this right it's a we fall into that that dichotomy you know the the mind mind matter right does one precede the other um i mean we don't know we don't know if mind precedes matter right i mean in 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 your view maybe it, it sounds like it would right mind precedes matter if god's a consciousness right and God is conscious, then God. Yeah, consciousness is fundamental. I would, I would, I would express myself like that. Consciousness is fundamental. Yeah. Um, I get, and then I think this is where our, our views may differ. Like on the flip side, right? I, I think matter brought about consciousness. You know, I, and and that's what it seems to me. I, I like what Dan Danette says. I like what John Serrell says about consciousness. I think it's very interesting. Um, I know there's a lot that needs to be done with it, but to me, to, to have consciousness be an essential component to the universe is, is no different in a way, just like you already alluded to, is no different in a way than saying that mat, you know, matter is an essential component to the universe. You know, they're kind of similar in that way it's still it's still it, both both of you know both of us in this regard we're still positing you know we're still positing that that there is something that creates or is the origin of the universe so i i guess in that in that way i always just took an open Occam's razor to it i always thought you know why am i going to, to posit that a consciousness was the was the predicate whereas to to me matt i guess matter is the predicate because in a way, we we think of ourselves as a universe. A universe was before us, as it seems to me. A universe was before us, and that was made of matter. The universe before us, I don't know, was made of consciousness. In a way, I, I believe in the panpsychist view. It what it it was because it's an essential piece. But there there are so many other elements out there that we don't know about, and there's so many new um, molecules particles that we're learning about. I mean, neutrinos, quarks, plonks, all these things didn't exist up until they were discovered. 
so that's i guess that's how i feel about like consciousness being the predicate as well as i mean it had to it had to have been discovered just like everything else in order to have you know existed in a way yeah and the, the question is what would discover consciousness other than consciousness right no that's i think and, that's, and what does it mean that's fascinating more more searchingly more, more searchingly what does it what does it mean for something to exist um in a way that makes no reference to perception so you know the 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 when it, what actually led me out of atheism was, was the, the fall, or at least materialism. So people get a little lazy and act like once you get away from materialism, there you have God, but you know, can have some other kind of, for lack of a better term, naturalism. Um, uh, well, the, the thing is not really because, but, but anyway, I'm, um, so, you know, you've got, you've got uh, this question of what does it mean for something to exist? I was enough of an analytic philosopher that I required of I required I required myself to mean something when I said that something exists. And I know what it means for a vase to exist, because what I do is I translate that 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 concept existence is not a predicate. I think it is a predicate, but but anyway, when I translate that word, which is somehow non-predicative, um, you know, if, if I if I take the word exist as applied to a vase, I translate that into statements about you know my sense perception, and so it's intrinsically tied to perception. Um, if I ask someone to tell me what it means that something exists without reference to perception, inevitably what happens is they will they will give me statements about conditions under which it could be perceived, but you know uh, under which it is nonetheless not currently being perceived. So they modalize it. They they tie it to possibly. Yeah. yeah. Would you would you compare that to kind of Kant's um, po a posteriori analytic statements? Like you like I, I. Yeah. I'm not versed enough in Kant to actually directly answer that question. I mean, um, what what I can say it's definitely is that it's definitely related to Kant's notion of the noumenon, which he could never really define. Um, and then the problem with that sort of indefinable definition or an inconceivable concept is that um, you you are effectively asserting something, which it's like you're referring to something, but at the same time not referring to it. It's a kind of linguistic performative contradiction. And that is like when I was saying earlier, I required myself to mean something when I said X exists. And the 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 going the the to go the route of the noumenon is effectively to 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 um, refuse this challenge and to say that well something can exist but I don't have to mean anything by exist when I say it exists so the Humpty Dumpty thing um, it, when I use a word it means what I choose it to mean nothing more nothing less except in this case I mean precisely nothing. And you know that is another issue is that is that something which is completely uh, uh, unable to be defined ends up no different than sheer nothingness, than neither x nor not x. In other words, this entity whose existence you posit becomes indistinguishable in terms of definition from nothingness itself, or or, or any non-entity. So 
kind of an issue. I mean, I mean, I mean, the the the, the thing is, I I hope my sarcasm isn't too off putting, but um, the the and but this is what I mean when I said my true background is in philosophy. I don't read books, but I I've done the operations in my mind enough times that I have it as a kind of procedural knowledge. I can walk around a problem. I can see it from different perspectives, in a way that when people get it from books exclusively, they are tied to certain perspectives. But they don't understand how the object changes when you rotate it. And um, so it is what I was saying is related to the noumenon. And it, when we when we posit the existence of something, unless we're positing a mere non-entity, in other words, positing nothing at all, um, we, we have to be in something when we say it exists. And people are speaking of something intrinsically non-perceptual, which nonetheless exists, like the noumenon. Um, they can't say what it means for it to exist is that, you know, you see it, you touch it, you taste it. So what they do is they modalize it. They go the route of, well, under such and such conditions, you could touch it, could taste it, could see it, but you don't happen to currently. But if there were perceivers there, you know, it's like this is a thing that uh, exists even though no one's perceiving it. By which I mean that if someone was there, they would be perceiving it. And so this is the sort of, what it means for this to exist is that it, it causes your, it, it, it would be the cause of your hypothetical experience of its existence. So what it means for it to exist is that, you know, it's like, if it, if it didn't exist, you wouldn't perceive it if you were there. So we're actually using the word to define a word right there. In other words, and, and, and that's, that's a problem I, I would submit because the, the, The use of the use of the word exist in that fashion, it's it's um uh, it's um it's it's not it's not at that tautological level um where where it would be admissible to give it in terms of itself. I mean ultimately, yes, existence is in terms of itself, but 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 the thing is what what I mean by that is perceptual existence. If you talk about non-perceptual existence. I think you're ultimately just talking about square circles. Um, that, but that's 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 my position. And I'm sorry if I can, can I just run away for a second. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry for talking so much too. But please. No, that's that's very interesting. Um, I, I want I want for Cal to come back um, because that you know once he gets back we'll get back into it. And Pete, maybe I can answer a shorter question in that time. Um, about square circles, I think that's fascinating, and and I'll just square circle. Yeah, I mean, I'll just pre I'll just preface briefly um, that. Well, real quick, I just wanted to yeah. say before until Cal comes back that um, you guys under talk yourself so much because you guys like if I don't know if if my level of philosophy is to you guys' level of philosophy as like I don't know. Um. What's a good? Uh, I don't know what I'm. What I'm trying to say, like, uh, I don't know, like, it's a good example of something. I don't even know what's a good comparison. All I'm trying to say is that you guys are on another plane of existence than I am, for sure. Especially Cal. Cal is out there. I, I love listening to him talk because it's it's just he can he can wax and, and wane all day long. Um, but yes, um, 
you know, I thought I, one thing that stuck out to me was the idea of consciousness kind of being preeminent in the universe, right? Um, because in order for it to exist within the universe, um, then like if, if the universe doesn't have consciousness, then um, the us having consciousness within the universe are more complex um, than the universe itself, than, than its source. You know what I mean? And that's a big problem I see with lots of types of atheism is that like there's kind of this growth in evolution, obviously. And, and not, not that I'm opposed to evolution. I think evolution has makes a lot of good points, like the concept of adaptation and growth and even natural selection to some degree has some uh, makes sense. It's just like the idea that, or even on a physical level, you got abiogenesis, the whole concept that like there was no life and then like lightning struck 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 a pool of soup primordial soup and and conformed and formed these self-replicating rna molecules that then proceeded to keep evolving into life like i don't know it's far-fetched in my mind but then on a more meta level you got consciousness um you have conscious creatures within a universe that's only material and not metaphysical conscious um, but then it expands the Expands the definition of what is, what is material, I guess. You know, that's what you would probably say, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cal, I'm glad you're back. I, I want to talk more about the vase, <laughs> about that vase, because it's very interesting to me. Um, so, and, and Pete, thank you for, for bringing that up. I mean, I think we'll get to, I think it's like a timeline where, where, we we left off way at the beginning of like the origins of consciousness. And you brought us back to, back to like planet Earth. You know, um, we definitely we definitely got to bring it back to planet Earth. Maybe maybe on another podcast. I think that'd be great. Um, and then we can get into morality because I don't I don't know if we'll get to morality in this in this segment. Um, maybe we will. Um, you know, but, I think we probably we may or may not get to morality in this segment. But at some point later on, just keeping in the back of your mind, I would like to get back to the concept of your concept of spirituality, what does that look like practically in your daily life? You know, that's a really, that's something more of interest of mine. Not that this isn't a fascinating conversation because it is, but it's like you guys are, we're up in like the stratosphere and we can bring it down to earth later for the lay folk like me. Sure. I, and, and I, and my, uh, my, but continue my, with your thought, continue what you were going to say. Oh, sure. Sure. My, my, my goal that I wanted to learn today is and I wanted to talk to you, Cal, about how, and you, you've offered me really, really tight and good, like not arguments, but thoughts, I should say, for how I, I better understand how you came to Christianity. Because to, to me, it didn't, it didn't make, you know, to me, back, back when, it didn't really make concrete sense. And, and every argument or every explanation I've heard didn't really make clear and concise sense. But I think you've offered a really good and tight and thoughtful and care caring um, thought in regarding that. So I, I first want to preface by saying I appreciate all the mental gymnast all the mental gymnastics and thoughts that you've had to get you yeah, to where ho you are. Hopefully I, they're not I find too acrobatic. Valuable. Yeah, but hopefully not too acrobatic. But but there's a no. reason I was an atheist for 14 years. 
And the reason why is that the answers that other people gave to me did not make sense either. So I completely understand that because I wasn't about to go believing in, in something without um, it was something that was that was false. Or anyway, so I would I would like I would like to say that I, I really understand that, and that moreover I do not consider propositional belief in God to be a necessary condition for what you would call morality, because I think the truth is that whether someone or whether or in what way someone realizes that everyone has a concept of God, and 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 also everyone is in participation with the true God, and. And um, and also, I don't think that you know, God's nature is such that he puts people in, in eternal hell or otherwise permanently negates their identity for something that could not, in the final analysis, have been anything other than a full, anything uh, uh, other uh, than a less than fully informed choice. So in other words, God is ex hypothesi, the, the source of all goodness apart from whom there is no goodness. And yet somehow people make a fully informed decision to be eternally separated from the source of all goodness. You know, it, the, 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 the notion is crazy. So, so either, either God doesn't care that people are making uninformed decisions with permanent consequences, in which case he doesn't really love everyone and he's not maximal love. God is not love. We're just going to falsify that, that, that particular biblical verse and it says it more than once um or um there is something here more more complicated and more complex than ah you know you didn't believe you didn't believe this within the arbitrary time span therefore you know permanent and absolute utter, utter negation of your identity and 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 like you weren't you know they they have a notion of god i guess what i mean is by they i sort of fundamentalist or excessively maybe propositional although you know, i'm pretty propositional too but apologists they have a notion of god over here and we're over here and then somehow the absolute backdrop or background space is just given as though god were not himself ultimate reality and not himself the 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 medium which underlies the essential god god and creature or creator creation division so um you know um the 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 fact is you always are in god god is always the highest level of your identity now it, you have a concept of ultimate reality because everyone does um and whether and in what respect it is entirely accurate well no one's is because um you know it's not it's not like i have the right conception of ultimate reality and you have uh, the wrong one because it's not mine neither of us has what you could call a completely accurate uh or exhaustive um conception or description of ultimate reality how could we so it so the thing is you're always in god you're always participating in god and you do always know right from wrong so some ap apologists want to act like somehow in your heart you know that god exists by which they mean the big cop in the sky and that you're just just choosing hell for some reason and you're doing it with some kind of subconscious suppressed knowledge that that's actually what you're doing i you know i think that's nonsense but what i do think is that everyone does know of god's existence by which is meant 
everyone knows that the most selfless love of which they are currently capable is the right way to act. That's knowing God. God is not known in any other way. You don't die to yourself out of self-interest. You, you, you know God and you, and you, and you serve God by, by dying to yourself. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, that can't be rooted in or motivated by statements about some kind of heavenly afterlife. If it could, that would just be self-interest. Um, so the, um, yes, uh, the, I, I, I'm really, I understand all the stuff about like, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that my explanations have been somewhat more in the nature of reality itself, where it's, it's very intelligible. Um, so whatever way you look, it's always going to offer a completely congruent and coherent um, uh, perspective. So hopefully, you know, and again, I have to acknowledge the person from whom I learned most, you know, in this area, which is, which is Chris Lang and whom I inevitably even find myself sounding a little bit like, I don't know why, I'm just like a little bit of a parrot, I guess, but. No, that's good. I, before, because I want to, I want to talk about that self, the selfless love piece and, and how God plays into that. In a way, I've become the interviewer. So I'm sorry, Pete. Um, but <laughs> but it's very it's very interesting. Um, how did you get? Because I wanted to go back to the exi what existence is without perception. I want to know how that idea got to you to believe in the Christian God, mm -hmm. right? But I guess specifically, right? Because why not any other God, or why not, or why not anything else? Before, but before we get to that piece, I want to kind of just clarify what existence is without perception to me existence without perception is nothing right that's that it's nothingness i and and i and i understand what you were saying about in a way we posit nothingness but sometimes the flip side is that somethingness can also be posited until it is observed or measured whether it be through like our eight senses um, that's the occupational therapist to me talking. There's three others no one talks about. The eight senses or um, or measurement by a computer or or et cetera. Um, I mean, for a long time, I'd always, I, I like John Wheeler a lot, the physicist and what he had to say about a participatory universe. Where yeah, that was Langan's big influence too. Yeah. I got to look into Chris Lang, uh, Langan because he, he just sounds fascinating. Um, what I liked about that is, I mean, in a way, the universe had created us, right? And I think that's where the, the, the universal consciousness is coming from that you're, you're describing. For me, it's just the material and, it, and it's in superposition. It, it's undefined because it hasn't been observed yet. You know, we have all of these, you know, photons and electrons that we know to be, I guess, objectively real um, in a sense, but we don't know that yet because they haven't been observed. Until they are observed, and I'm, and I'm making this hand gesture to re replicate that, that you and universe and John Wheeler's uh, uh, diagram of the eye looking back at the, at the origin of the universe, at that singularity. Um, those things are in superposition. They're undefined. They're not here nor there. They're not something. They're not nothing. They're just, and that's the binary linguistics restraining the thought. But you know what I mean? It's just kind of this floatingness until that eye, until that observe, observation, until that perception actualizes. Um, so existence to me does not, existence definitively and meaningfully does not exist without perception. However, existence mm. 
as, as a superposition seems to have existed, if that makes any sense. So, so what is, so back to that question, what is, um, I'm sorry, what is, what exists without perception? To me, it's just superposition. And, and that could be nothing, but it is well, something. Note, note, note that that superposition is not without perception. Right, right. The idea of superposition wouldn't exist without perception either. Yeah, in other words, in other words, we, if, if by offering this, this notion of superposition as the exception to the rule that nothing exists without perception, it wouldn't, satis it wouldn't work as an exception because the superposition is a superposition because it has, you know, it involves both the idea of perception and not. But everything that you're, you're saying in terms of a participatory universe and, and existence being this sort of interplay between what we call nothingness, um, which is itself this kind of slippery dialectical notion, and, and perception is very accurate. It's very sophisticated. Um, and, and it, it, but it also does not sound like materialism to me. And so not garden variety materialism, which just says that, yeah, there could have been stuff even if there was nobody around to perceive it. Um, and um, you, you talk about this participatory universe. As far as I know, that's that's Langan's conception, too. In other words, and remember, for Langan, the universe is God. So man actually has a crucial role in, in, in Langan's thought, if I'm not mistaken, where uh, just as uh, the Big Bang and the evolution of uh, terrestrial life was necessary for the emergence of humankind. So also hum humanity's unique ability retrospectively to, uh, to observe the, the, the conditions of its own origination um, is, is, also, is also necessary because to be is to be perceived. And in perceiving the origins of the universe, it sort of uh, closes a self-excited circuit. But now there, 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 are, there are wrinkles here where it's like, what is from one perspective self-excited coming into being? It's like from another perspective, necessarily um, always, always existing as um, a, if you like, you know, like a, a superposition or, or an interplay between, between what we've called thingness and somethingness. I think that's that's what you're describing is the structure of ultimate reality, which crucially always exists as as such an interplay. It's not just completely transcendent. It's actually imminent, and I would say incarnate. That is to say, God, God is God. This is, this is an interesting sort of idea, but basically, you have um uh, you have the notion of the image of God. It's very fruitful to speculate on what that is, because when we look at God, we see a reflection of our true selves. And when God looks at us, as in Genesis, he sees a reflection of his own self. So if we're each seeing each other in the other, the question is, what is the nature of the image that is being reflected? We are not able uh, to come up with anything other than a kind of drosty effect. Two mirrors positioned against each other, facing each other, infinite telescoping of, of reflections that's the nature of god god is god is not merely one term in the equation man and god god is the whole equation so in other words you know if you, if you have you and god knowing each other god isn't just god god is actually the union of you and god in some way it's like i'm saying that you plus god equals god 
um, although there's problems with using arithmetic as an analogy. But um, uh, so go, go, go ahead. Cal, I was just wondering, um, how does that fit into like the concept of uh, is it aseity of God? Like the idea that God is fully actualized in himself. Like he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't, it's not that he necessarily needs his creation to have some sort of fulfillment or actual self-actualization. But I guess like the incarnation, because you're kind of mentioning that is just a fruit of his very nature. You know what I mean? The, the aseity. So I would actually say that incarnation is necessary. God is necessarily incarnate. God is necessarily Jesus Christ. Um, but that is actually would be a difference uh, between me and other theologians and that I actually have a super, super uber high Christology. Um, and uh, the, as far as its relation to Asedi, that's a great question. Um, how it relates is what I talked about earlier in terms of this notion of there being a sort of absolute perspective outside of ultimate reality and, and the definitional impossibility of speaking of such a thing. When people talk about aseity, what they mean is that God is of himself and sufficient for himself from some notional perspective outside of ultimate reality. But really, one cannot, one cannot, that is not a coherent concept, even if one can posit it in one's mind. So it's logically impossible, even though it appears conceivable, in the same way that the dividing the circumference of a circle by its diameter. Um, uh, we can imagine getting some series of digits other than those found in pi. But, but in, in reality, if we actually did the imagination right, it would not be logically possible to arrive at any other series. Um, so there's, there's, there, are, there are tricks here. Um, you know, there, there, this, is, this is a tricky subject matter. You, you can find analogs to it in sort of uh, Barclay's uh, dialogue between Hylas and Philonous, where um, Hylas says there's nothing more easy than to imagine something existing from no perspective uh, or when it's not perceived. And then, and then Philonous said, well, when you imagine this tree, from what point of view do you see it? We're calling attention to the fact that in adducing this tree as an example of something which can exist without being perceived, he's um, necessarily invoking a, a point of view. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's pointing out the, the intrinsically perceptual character of, of the existence which he is imputing um, to the, this, this non-perceptual uh, or supposedly non-perceptual existent thing. Anyway, so there are things we think we can do that we can't actually do. And, and, but, but see, when you get, as far as that, that meaning, in other words, speaking of some absolute vantage point outside of ultimate reality, we think we can posit such a thing. There is no such thing. By definition, it's ruled out. We can speak of it internally. And so the thing is, externally, if such a thing were possible, it, uh, ultimate reality would be uncaused. Internally, ultimate reality is self-caused. God is, I would say, self-created. And that's, that's a perfect, I'm sorry, that's a perfect segue into like my, my thoughts and, and, and we kind of looped back. That was great. Um, so would a universe not exist without perception? Correct, it would not. And what this is getting at in, in answer to Peter's question is that I would say that creation is actually 
ontologically necessary. It is not an option. There are different ways one can, can one can appreciate this. I would say the nature of the there's options as far as well at least ex ante, at least prospectively. This gets very very difficult stuff. What I'm saying is like ex ante or prospectively something is is optional and and it appears contingent, but after the fact it gains a kind of necessity. Think of superposition versus the collapsing of the wave function, and how once the wave function is collapsed, there is sort of a there is a sort of um, retrospective determinism that, that gets associated with that. Um, uh, the, um, the I'm sorry, now I even forgot. Uh, okay, maybe I can jump jump in, and I I see I see how you I can see how you came back. I I and, maybe, and I won't speak for you, but maybe I can maybe. Yeah, yeah no, I'm yeah, thinking. go go riff, yeah. Yeah, riff, riff for a little bit. And and so so Pete, this is why I always joke and say I'm God. This is why I say this, because without perception in foreseeing the universe, the universe wouldn't have existed. Right. And that's that's why I joke lingui I mean linguistically and psychologically, um, you know, perception creates reality, right? Um but I see what you're saying, Kyle, where con where consciousness in perception are a necessity to have created the universe. Otherwise, the universe wouldn't have existed at all. And because the universe exists, it was necessary for us to have perceived it to create it. Yes, and, and so what I was making a point about was the idea that truly God is not one person looking at us as we look at God. Correct. God is the interplay. God is God knowing us knowing God knowing us. And that's, knowing and that's why God I said, it's a, I'm sorry, Kevin. No, that's fine. Um, and that's why I said it sounded like pantheism to me, because God is with, at least your description of God is within. It isn't objective. It is, it is the subjective relationship between persons and between the person in their mind and between the person in their psyche, where you have that, that re reflexivity and that self-actualization through and that's that's like design to me. That's like flow to me. That's like being in the world. That's our, you know occupation. When you are engaged in the world, in the the universe around you, it creates you. When you're engaged with others, when you're engaged with thought in the metaphysical, it creates you. And you too are creating it. You end up in this in this loop, right? So in this cyclical. And so I I understand all that, and I and I understand and it makes sense to me. Maybe I'm missing some bits, but let me but, let me finish because I'm going to answer the question that I'm anticipating. How does it re relate to Jesus? So, so man is is the self understanding of God, and I said God per se is not one figure looking at us as we look at Him. God is the interplay. God is God knowing us, knowing God knowing us, knowing God knowing us. He has that transjective nature and character. And so that, if you look, if you like that overlap, that interreferential interplay between God and creature, symbolically at least, that is Jesus Christ. But but the 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 thing about it is that it's well, how to put it? Ultimate reality is a is, it is a language. It is a symbol, self-symbolizing symbol, self-simulating simulation. Um, and and um, that um, the nature of that that symbol is also holographic. 
So in other words, the universe is like a, it's like a hologram where every part of it involves the whole structure. And so then the question is like, does the structure have a center? Or is, 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 there, is there a sort of center of the universe? You know, this is, this, is, this is getting into territory that I can't claim to fully understand. But um, if, we're, if we're again just piggybacking on Lang and standing on the shoulders of someone I would argue is a giant, um, true causation is not linear and is not mechanistic. It doesn't lie along the space-time continuum. Rather, it lies along that kind of quantum higher dimension that, that parametrizes and generates the space-time continuum. And that quantum dimension is sort of pre-cognitive, and it's also creative of um, the, the space-time continuum. So it's like consciousness, it, 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 it's, it's sort of actively creating space and time, which certainly don't exist without consciousness. And, 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 but what's also, what's, what's key to note about this dimension of reality um, is that it is, it corresponds to something like Aristotle's notion of final causation. It is the dimension of what Langdon calls telesis. It's the dimension of will. Um, at, uh, uh, will um, where, where it is, where it is bound. So uh, this, this world is created as 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 the binding of a of a sort of uh, will at 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 a, at a higher unbound level of, of of causation. So I guess what the the intuition, so far as nothing more than that, is, um, I can't I can't offer really rigorous proof for this, but that that real causation it lies. At, at some on some dimension that's orthogonal to the to the linear space-time level of cause and effect and that it's sort of retarded in the sense that we we observe its effects um, in retrospect um, and the true causation lies along the the level of will and so when we talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ and what did that do and why did it need to happen in order for our sins to be forgiven or for God to be cleared of some red tape that was obstructing him as if, as if reality were somehow inherently transactional and forgiveness could not be purchased without blood, you know, like in sort of Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan has to be sacrificed on the table because of the deep magic, because it's just some law that's written somewhere. Um, and it's just some external constraint on God that just exists somehow. You know, those are all the wrong way to understand the atonement. And I think the right way to understand it is to understand that true causation, again, lies on a, on a different level or dimension of reality. And that it was, it was, it was the will of God in the like, intrinsic. But see, God is always intrinsically incarnate. God is eternal. He doesn't change. So if he incarnated as Jesus Christ, that means he was always incarnated as Jesus Christ, if you ask me. Um, and so the will of the intrinsically incarnate God was to allow all the deviation from his own will that creation would entail. In a way, it was a kind of ego death. Creation you can view as, as God's ego death. Although the, word, the use of the word ego is somewhat problematical because it implies a sort of false self that has to die. But really, God has no, there's no falsity in God's self. 
Um, and, and, and that really gets to the sense of divine impassibility where classical theologians want to say, God doesn't feel, God does not suffer. Um, but if God is Jesus Christ, then God did suffer and does suffer. But, but the question is whether did him, did his dying to himself require any kind of effort or emotional conflict, or is it the case that due to the perfection of his love, his, his death to self was effortless? in a way that he possibly hints at when he says, my yoke is easy, which I interpret as a reference to the cross. And people talk about, well, no, it just means you accept his lordship and it's easy for Jesus to be your lord. No, it's not, because he says you have to pick up your cross and follow him. So um, I don't know if that was any kind of beginning of an answer. Um, but I, the kind of. I missed I miss the click. To you know, I miss, I miss where they meet. You know what I mean, and and I guess yeah. Well, I guess, sorry, it's not going to be perfectly. I mean, look, he, the cross itself is like this, this, this intersection of the vertical and the horizontal, the universal and the particular. Um, on some level, ultimate reality cannot be exhaustively understood or defined. I mean, for me, that's why the figure of Jesus Christ keeps coming back up so much because, like Augustine said, "Si comprehendes non es Deus." If you how to put it, the, 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 the Gnosticism and the New Age um, spiritualities suffer the deficit of being too, too comprehensible or too much as you would expect. Um, the the, the, the Jesus-centered or the Christ-centered, um, they're always the same to me. I don't believe in separating Jesus and the Christ, like Christ consciousness as distinct from the, the person Jesus of Nazareth. You know, certainly in the Bible, it does say... Uh, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Um, but but so whenever I say Jesus or Christ, I mean I'm both. Um, there's something about the 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 Christ-centered uh, ontology which is appropriately elusive. That is, as you take a step toward it, you you find that you have not arrived at it, despite the fact that you have somehow paradoxically none, nonetheless managed to approach it. Um, you know, so that's that's another thing about about ultimate reality is it, it involves certain asymmetries where it's something that you can approach without ever arriving at in principle. The, that should register as something of a paradox because it's ordinarily hard to conceive the notion of approaching apart from uh, the possibility of at some point arriving at. Um, uh, but it, but we all understand this notion of absolute truth ultimate truth as something which can only ever be approached and can meaningfully be approached without ever in principle um being arrived at but so if you want to make it more proximate i mean like my initial way into it was um i was trying to understand uh langan and and his notions of god as um you know god 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 is god is the mind of of, of the universe and so you can ask like can can this mind like understood as a brain? Can it have like an experience integratedly um, that the the neurons aren't all having separately? Logically, it's not possible. In other words, the utility of this mind supervenes on you might say the utility of the the little minds inside it that are fractionations or facets of it, just like we're members of the body of Christ. Okay, um, you know, notice the fractal nature of this, and I'm crazy, so I think that that Jesus is a member of the Trinity and also the Trinity. So it's kind of like fractal Jesus all the way down. I think Jesus Christ is the Godhead without actually denying that 
denying the Trinity, I, I would also say that, yeah, you the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Godhead, and then fractally, when you move into that, that's, that's Jesus. So it's a fractal movement. So you have body of Christ, physical Christ, body of Christ, physical Christ, celestial Adam, physical Adam, whatever it does. It's, it's, anyway, um, but so you talk about this, this sort of mind of the cosmos and its utility supervening on the utility of um, the minds within it that are fractionations or um, or facets of it, you could say. Um, um, I'm conscious of other stuff here, qualifications that need to be registered. Is it admissible to speak of non-fractional part, non-fractional parts, parts that are parts without it being the case that you can take them all away and be with nothing so but again when i talk about asymmetries you can approach god with ever without ever arriving at him in principle but still approach meaningfully you can be a part meaningfully of god without it being possible that you could take all the parts away and be left with nothing um because anyway i'm not going to get into that um so i was trying because for Langan, it's important that god moves to maximize generalized utility that's definitional from what i was talking about it's not logically possible for this brain let's say to have an experience integratedly that its neurons aren't all having separately. And so in trying to understand how God maximizes utility, I was at a loss to, to understand how a God, anything uh, that was anything other than maximal love could, could maximize utility. I was just at a loss to understand that. Um, Langan, it appears, has, has a somewhat different understanding of God. His understanding of God appears to be Darwinian and eugenic. Um, or at least anti-dysgenic, which he likes. But to me, I don't like that. Um, I don't think that's the God we have revealed in Jesus. God is not a God of scarcity, you know, like where, hey, there's only three loaves and two fish. Yeah, better call the herd. Only the fit ones get to eat. It's like, that's not what happens. Um, and um, so that was the way in. I thought God has to be love. And I thought, well, if God is love, if ultimate, so wait, okay who's the ultimate moral example to follow that depends on the nature of ultimate reality if ultimate reality is war then maybe genghis khan is, is the son of god and the ultimate moral example to follow if ultimate reality is love then i think the son of god looks a lot like jesus christ and he becomes much more intelligible in that light and then but then you get you go deeper into the synecdoche of it the fractality of it that the son of god is god son of god reveals god um and um and then that, that's sort of where it gets into that that mystery that you can only ever approach but never in principle arrive at um but maybe that does more work in terms of closing the loop a smidge um in insofar as um so and i'll try to rephrase for from my understanding the the idea of of ultimate reality falls upon the idea that um, I guess God is love, right? Because the world or the reality that we live in is so full of love, and that seems love seems to be the default that that has to that not has to, but that ought to be maybe not ought, but I'll say ought ought to be the case um, because of that reality in which we live. Is that at least I'm working my way backwards? Is that at least the first? first bit of understanding so so no i would say from like on the ground the world does not appear to superabound with love the question is what is love you know it says god is love that that ought to 
clue you into the fact that love is not really one created thing among others, but love is in the nature of the infinite it, itself, and in some sense really does not have an opposite. So we're saying that this innately, so we're saying that the, the innately human concept or, or at least biological concept of love is an innate thing. No, it transcends, it transcends humanity and biology. It's a transcendent thing. It's God. Which makes it innate, right? If it's transcendent, it makes it innate. It is innate, yes. No, I'm not, I'm not denying it, but, but, but it's, not, it's not merely innate as, let's say, our instincts are. It's deeper than that. Did love exist? before perception only innately, you're talking about before only definitionally perception. right wait wait wait, wait, wait. before admits of two understandings one is temporal as in like a linear sequence along space time another is perhaps one of logical priority um in the former set the former sense is unintelligible it's just like a category error the latter sense is, in terms of, is, is love logically prior to perception? Yes, in the way that the superposition is logically prior to the interplay of perception and, for lack of a better term, nothingness. So love, so that's just a comparison. Because I, I, don't, I, I don't see them, um, I don't see like a super position in love is equatable but you're but for this example that's how that's how you see it right love is love was in a superposition until it was observed okay um so so love love is it it ultimate love is ultimate reality so the the thing is it's what's holding so if you have if you have things that are mutually real, that means they're mutually related. Ultimate reality is singular in the sense that anything that is real is, is actually related to every other real thing. Um, it has to be, otherwise, there's, otherwise they're in two discrete realities that don't ever intersect. But then, you know, if ultimate reality is two, there's no truly meaningful sense in which we can ascribe reality to something which exists, but supposedly unrelated uh, to, to all other uh, real objects um, or real entities. And so ultimate reality is what is holding mutually related um, realence, existence, existing things together. So it's a deeper definition than just what I have for my dog as opposed to what I don't have for my annoying coworker. Although, if you inspect the nature of these relationships, you realize that what you if you love your dog, what, what that is speaking to is a, let's say, telic or the quantum even, but it related to that higher level of causation and reality. It's a tendency to create worlds. So, and, and uh, uh, so like if you, when, you, when you love someone else, you see yourself in them and you see infinite possibilities in them. That's what love is. And so love is, love is holding reality together. It's also genera generating reality. Um, 
And so let me see. Getting distracted. Um, so if is love is all. So is love kind of the glue that 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 holds? I guess the because because where where we where we had left off was you know well we we didn't leave off anywhere but the existence without perception right that ultimate reality that thing that to as it seems to me is not absolute that is not it's not it's not without perception it's self perceiving at all times oh because it has to be. Yeah. Can I try to explain it in a, I don't know, layman's way, maybe, or a little bit, a little bit lower level. I think what you were saying, Kel, is love is ultimate reality, right? It is, it is undistorted, undefiled reality, right? With no privation of the good, right? So then where there is, where there is, but then Chris, you were trying to say like, well, you can see love all throughout reality that's true because it is ultimate reality it's it's, a, it's the foundation upon which all reality exists but then i guess there's like lesser levels of reality that are privations of ultimate reality right in that kind of sense so the two exist at the same time it's kind of like the wheat and the tares growing together you know what i mean does that sound about right there's 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 intricacies here yeah but but it's why langan talks about a so-called stratified manifold so I tried explaining this the other day to someone who was asking about value hierarchies. And I was trying to explain that the hierarchy itself is God, but at the top of the hierarchy is also God. So it's getting into the inherently self-referential nature of reality, where in other words, his image is in everything because it's holographic, you might say, but some things image him more. And so it's, it's this highest image of God that is continually selected for while the West is refined out. And so the thing is, when you look in reality and you don't see much love, but you see some, that's what gets selected for. But everything images it to some extent. Everything is, is love in some way, in some sense, to some extent. But um, it, they, the, there's this self-referential dynamic here where we're, we're within himself god is god is sort of positing an idea of himself and that's that, and that's the perfect word i i was thinking of is that to me and, and i understand the concept right i what i'm grappling with is the i guess because i'm always thinking of like truth and i put that in air quotes because i don't believe in an absolute truth right i believe in a pragmatic truth as a, a, that allows us to navigate the world and exist in the world is but, that truth absolute? No. No, um, but I have to I have to act like it is. <laughs> well, what well, is the fact that you have to act like it is? Is that an absolute truth? No. So it's you've got to walk away truth. from both those statements. And so that that's 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 the self-referential nature of reality that'll get you. Like like I said, when you take it to that meta level, you'll always get to the point where you have to say both X and not X. And so and that that's why, you know, like to to paraphrase Scruton a little bit, whoever whoever says truth doesn't exist is asking you not to believe him, so don't. So I say absolute, absolute truth. You this know. is kind of unrelated, but not related, but unrelated, but related at the same time. But I was thinking about like the concept of judgment, like in the judgment of God, 
what it and it kind of is related to what I was saying. You have you have the standard of good and beautiful, love and true, but then you have the privation of that, right? And, and like like Augustine says, evil's not a thing. It's just like a disorder, a privation of what is, what actually is, what actually exists, what truly exists is the good, the love, the true, the beautiful, um, and everything else is is it's it's just like uh, I think we mentioned like way back. Me and Cal were talking. It wasn't that long ago, actually, maybe a month ago. That like light, um, a shadow is not something. It's the absence of light. Um, in the same way, and so like, what is judgment then, in a sense? Um, because I mean, just like thinking from a universalist perspective, this might help you think about it, Chris, a little bit. And I think Cal would probably agree with me. So there are some people who are universalists who would say, you know, um, there's no, there's no judgment, um, that God is just love. And it's like, so like, you know, mother Teresa dies and she just goes straight to heaven and same thing. Hitler dies. And he just goes straight to heaven. But what I think what is baked into reality here and that I, is that what if an, a flawed disordered Someone who, whose their being has become, their identity and their being has become more, has identified more with the privation of the good rather than the good. When they, when they encounter God, then the judgment is the pain of being with, is the pain of being in the light. And you can't, you can't exist as a shadow when you're in the light. And, you know, that's kind of like a, it's, it's, it's related, but it's unrelated at the same time. But it, I'm saying it kind of more for myself thinking about it because this really gets my brain going thinking like oh wow there's kind of um i don't know there's it's kind of baked into reality these um these concepts right and that's that's what i'm railing against is that i don't like because what you're talking about is 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 an axiology you know what is all good what is all beautiful what is all right and love seems to encapsulate all of those things um making it an absolute but I think I think in a way it's posited or it's a presupposition to say that all of those things are baked into reality because reality is is mean, it's harsh, it's unforgiving, it doesn't care in the end. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the suffering that we do. But we don't even need the moral argument for that. I think we can go even into a more metaphysical realm of saying, you know, it like did there's a there's a famous paper i believe it's by john Searle. it could be wrong it might be dan Danette, of what it is to be a bat and that's all about how perceptions are different like what is the world to a bat you know so what was a, what are what is the world to an animal what is a world to a tree what is you know what i mean trees don't love as it seems to me unless we pause it that love is an innate substance, just like in a way panpsychism, I feel posits that consciousness is an innate, sub, an innate thing. I mean, we can't, I, I find it difficult to posit innateities um, because they don't, because they're unfalsifiable truths. You know, just like I, I alluded to previously, there's, I don't know if you've heard of Karl Popper, I'll ask Cal if he has, but he has this, he, he 
grappled with the issue of deduction and induction. So he created a thought experiment, you know, starting with the hypothesis that all swans are white. And that, that can reign true if you corroborate it. Every swan I've seen is white, 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 white. But once I see a black swan, my hypothesis is debunked, right? So that was all to say that if something is not testable, if you cannot test it and be wrong, then it cannot be necessarily absolutely true. I mean, nothing can be, but I'll even just say objectively true. Um, but then so in light of postmodernism, in light of postmodernism, nothing can be tested. <laughs> right, which, nope. is why, which is why postmodernism, and I was actually talking about this the other night, postmodernism is only a good tool. Deconstruction yeah. is, is only a good tool to, to grapple with thoughts. One cannot live like a postmodernist because then it means that you can't have values. There are no values to be had because every value is false. But at least one can recognize that all values are constructions. Um, but before we go into value, value tell your, your back, um, I was just talking about how it seems like certain axiological principles like goodness and beauty and love are, at least in, in the theory that's being described, innately baked into, and that's what Pete described, maybe it's what you, you may be able to explain further, um, baked into good reality, just as consciousnesses. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I don't see them as innate truths. I don't see many truths as innate. And I know, like you already alluded to, you end up, you get to that point where things conflict and it's something and nothing at the same time. And that, and that is true. That is what we get to every time. But just because I feel when we get to that point of it's something and it's nothing, I think we can, I, as you know, in my practice, I just say, I don't know. I, I, I don't go to, I, I usually don't posit love or, you know. Can I, can I call your attention? The... Oh. Sorry, Pete, okay. I saw you had your hand I want to call your attention to something in a non-rivalrous way that you just said that just clicked for me, because you talked very eloquently about the superposition, okay? And then you have, you, have, you have the interplay of somethingness and nothingness. What it just occurred to me uh, now is that in your terms, with it, that which interestingly captures, again, the self-referential nature of reality, that somethingness and nothingness, the nothingness is the superposition. So the superposition is like a superposition of itself and, and finitude. So and that's getting into what I said earlier about the infinite needing to use a word to define a word. Um, and um, it's the interplay of the, the infinite is itself the interplay of the infinite and the finite. So it has to advert back to itself in, in, in giving itself. Um, uh, so I, I thought that was just just interesting that um, and that, that it does relate to axiology. Um, but I interrupted Peter. Yeah, so I wanted to address because a few minutes ago, Chris had mentioned that defining the good, the true, the beautiful, right? And and I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but I think like in classical theology, definitely in ancient times, Whatever was, whatever was um, beautiful, whatever was good, true, and beautiful, that was like God, you know. Um, and and I still I believe that's true too. And I know, um, like David Bentley Hart in his book on the experience of God, he gets deeply into that. And I've been meaning to like really deep dive deep into that book. It's just so hard. It's just so dense. It's so hard to read. 
But anyway, the good, true, and the beautiful, what is that? Now, that's a great question. Um, and I was just talking to an Orthodox priest a couple of days ago, actually, and I was asking about what, what does apophatic and cataphatic mean? Have you ever heard those terms? So basically, in there's apophatic and there's cataphatic. Apophatic is describing what something is not in order to get at what it is. Uh, because it's safer to describe what something is not than it is to say what something is. So there's very, like all throughout scripture, there's, there's very few statements of who God is. And all throughout like liturgies and tradition, there's a lot of statements of who God is not. Um, you know, you get these statements like immortal, immutable. Um, what's another one? I mean, I guess aseity is that, that uh, a negative, right? So you have these negative statements um, to describe God. Um, and so that's the apophatic. And then the cataphatic is who God is. So, so what is the good, the true, and the beautiful? Well, you hear a lot of God is love. God is just. God is merciful. There's all these different statements of who God is. So I guess that can help you at least in some sense, when we're talking about the good, true, the beautiful, um, there's what we're, I think it's easier actually, the apophatic actually helps us because it helps us understand it. Like you kind of go around the bush until you really pinpoint, okay, that's what it is. So it can't be all this, it has to be this, you know what I'm saying? The apophatic gets at the idea what we were talking about, like a so-called stratified manifold, where it's God all the way down from the bottom to the top. God is the highest level of your identity, and yet some things seem to image God more than others. Those are selected for through eternity, and in that way, they're the image of the eternity. In terms of these transcendentals of goodness, truth, and beauty, I guess there's all kinds of stuff here. But basically, when you attend to the idea of a form, what you realize is they are themselves particulars. They're not universals. They're, they're the instantiations of things that are yet more universal. When you get up to that level of abstraction where you're talking about the good, the true, and the beautiful, you're still recognizing, you know, as, as universal as they are, you're, you're still aware that they are themselves reflections of some yet more formless form. Um, and, uh, you know, that would be like, say, the point of absolute convergence um, in, in your kind of, you know, horizon. Um, and, I mean, there's so much here because you talked about the, the classic, like, let's say the Greek philosophers who sought God as the good, the true, and the beautiful. And then Chris was talking about, uh, talking about axiology, and I, was, and I was saying that that is related to self-reference. It's very interesting that in Genesis, God creates in his image and pronounces it good. What I was saying earlier about us seeking in every desirable thing, a sort of image of ourselves, but image of ourselves in that most general sense of the word self, where the self coincides with its world in that solipsistic, let's say, sense of itself. But, but really, if, if you're using the word self to so widely as to encompass all the otherness that there is in existence, what you really mean by that is God. And, and which is another way of saying that you're seeking your own notion of God. 
which however comprehensive it may be is still a notion of god but this is a very interesting answer to the question that 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 euthyphro raises in uh or that socrates raises in the, the euthyphro dialogue do the gods love what's good because it's good or um is the good good because the gods love it the answer is has to be more it has to be more fundamental than either of those binaries um you know you have the notion of buridan's ass which is a donkey which presented with two equally uh like two 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 seemingly identical uh bales of hay cannot choose between them and therefore starves to death so is is there's a there's this thing here that there has to be a move which avoids this kind of sort of this this dichotomy or this this endless endless vacillation and to me what that is 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 the recognition that again what we seek in every desirable thing is an image of ourselves slash god because for us as inheriting the the item potence of ultimate reality we are effectively subject to a kind certain kind of solipsism which also must be related to theosis and what it means for us ultimately to be united with God. Um, although these these are very very these are very tricky um, tricky concepts because you speak about them and, and people hear you as saying, "Well, you're just claiming to be God now, aren't you?" Which is interestingly what we see you know, the, the accusation leveled against Jesus Christ. Like, he called them gods to whom the word of God came. Why do you say that I blaspheme when I say that I am the Son of God? So it's tremendously interesting stuff because I'm not saying that I am God in the way that Jesus Christ is. Um, Hare Krishna, as we talked about Krishna being the ultimate form of God, but nonetheless, the other forms of God were qualitatively, let's say, identical to him and the way that flames on a candle are all qualitatively the same flame. They're in the same nature. But we may speak nonetheless of one candle that lit all the others and therefore has a certain kind of logical priority over them. So, and, and that is the analogy I would reach for with respect to the divinity of Jesus Christ and the divinity of you and me. Um, um, but anyway, there's there's a lot of stuff that there's a lot of stuff here. It's it's ultimately it's a very it's a very great mystery. But everything that is in God is God. That's the that's the simplicity of God. Everything that's in in ultimate reality inherits its item potence. So anyway, we're talking about the nature of valuation as as self identification. What we select as desirable is ultimately an image of ourselves, um, and that's what God is doing too, as I as I alluded to earlier. Um, so that that is the self referential component of axiology or value theory. And because otherwise it is very difficult to derive values from something more fundamental than themselves, right? If only because the act of valuing something is intrinsically desirable, you know, it's like uh, it's getting into the bird and ass thing. Very great. Right. He can't recognize making a decision of some kind as a good in and of itself, and therefore he endlessly vacillates and starves to death. Am I making some kind of sense here? Or am I just a complete madman? No, no, you're doing great, and I have I have questions. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're and and for the and for the record, I have maybe 20 more minutes, and then we'll so we'll we'll try to I guess Pete can wrap us up relatively soon. 
Um, well, so I was, I was thinking, you know, maybe for the next five minutes, you can respond to Cal. And then Cal, if you have like something really short to say, that'd be great. And then I'd love to get into like the spirituality of the work you do, you know, get back more into the OT stuff. I mean, if you feel that, unless you want to save that for another time. We can maybe. try. We'll see where it brings we'll try. us. I'll try to take All right, five we'll minutes. Um, I don't know if I will, but I mean, regarding axiology and what is all good, I mean, I, from what I'm understanding, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, good is good because it's good, you know, is that, is that kind of where we're at, where, where act, the principles of axiology are just innate, innately good, right, because definitionally that's what they are, they are in themselves what they say they are, is that right? I say ontolo ontologically, not definitionally. But definitionally is more language. We're talking about like the very Correct. fabric of existence. That's what itself, I'm. Right? That's what I'm. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that ontologically these they're they're being used, whereas I don't know if they can. Like from my perspective, because I I guess I can only speak from my my perspective. I don't see them as ontologically necessary. You know what I mean? I I live with them. I use them pragmatically, and I believe in them because because everything. And in Cal and P, everything that you guys have said are things that I believe and that I practice, but they're things that I, I can't believe to be absolute truths. I mean, when we when we get to the idea of uh, like an absolute reality or total reality, I, I don't think an absolute reality can exist. And I know that gets I know that gets us to that solipsistic place. I know that gets us to that two bales of hay and we just and the donkey dies and we can't decide. I know that's where it gets us. But uh, please, please, please don't imagine that I'm arguing against this on pragmatic grounds. I'm, I'm arguing against this on logical grounds. Again, uh, the notion of there no being there being no absolute truth must itself pretend to the status of absolute truth, or the the, the value that says uh, these values aren't real, but I should follow them just because it's better for me. What principle tells you to do that? That is some value that you are treating as though it has mm -hmm. an intrinsic or immediate or necessary, logically right. necessary status. Richard Dawkins would call that the selfish gene, right? Richard Dawkins would call that the, the selfish gene where, where we have this innate need and will to survive. I mean, I think that's what that, for me, um, uh, you know, that's what it comes down to is the will to survive. And that's what, for me, that's what love is. Love isn't an ontologically or metaphysical thing. Love, love was in a superposition. It wasn't here nor there. It wasn't. It wasn't existent until it was actualized. I mean, can flies love? Was grass? Well, I, I guess. I guess the question is, I, I'm, I'm wondering what what makes you think that these things can be successfully derived from physicalist premises. That's that's where I, I still sort of wonder. Um, you know how how you manage to from from my perspective square that circle. Right. No, that's that's relevant. It's love. It's a realization that takes some time. I think on a heart level, you already understand it. Mm. The, 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 the head level, the conscious level, it takes some time and it's not necessary. That's why I'm not, well, how to put it? It's not, it's not necessary to be saved. That gets into all kinds of issues. I know, because that's I, what I'm I saying say, is that nothing's necessary. Say that. It's not. Well, 
no, <laughs> I mean, it's not necessary to be saved, but I'm a Christian universalist, which just means I think, I don't think you have to believe in Jesus. I think you will. Just kind of how, similarly to, you know, how the, the universe didn't need to create consciousness, but it did, right? Like, just drawing a comparison. Um, but I don't know. I, like, like you already alluded to, the heart says love, but the but the mind, my my mind notes it as not an objective entity. It is a it is a useful entity. We feel like it is objective. You know what I mean? We feel good is good. I mean that's why we have them definitionally, right? Because the fe the definition comes from the feeling, and the feeling only came to be. I'm going to sound like Jordan Peterson for a second, but the and I I don't like his politics. Let me be clear. Um, the feeling came to be only because it had a had a use and those that had those feelings only survived those who those who only had hate got in arguments and got themselves killed those who were too foolhardy jumped off cliffs thinking that they would live and thought that they could fly you know there's a bet and that's the aristotelian golden you know golden rule that that balance between full foolhardiness and meekness is bravery and it's that middle ground that that gets us to where we need to go now i know one I, would say I, that, sorry no, no, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I was gonna say, I know one would say the middle ground is is the the objectivity. And I would agree that it is objective, but I don't think it's absolute. The the middle ground is the transjectivity. It is that interplay between right. the subjective and the objective. This is it's a different thing. Right. I, from my perspective, when I hear you say all these things, all I can feel is that there's a timer set on views like this because the the, the contradictions uh are, are the, the the incoherence is 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 inherent in in those in those premises and it's just a matter of time before those contradictions are brought out by experience unless you are an intellectually dishonest person which you are not so and and and, and so i in a sense i'm not i'm not even worried to i've said it before the areas where we differ but i don't feel the need to you know say it again and again as though let's say your salvation depended on depended upon it um i i'm i'm content uh in the in the recognition that 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 you being as intellectually honest as you are um you will you will see these premises you know work themselves out um and and the the book that um peter referenced um uh, atheist delusions despite its um extremely invidious title um is a good book to read it's not what it's not what did it for me i read it sort of after the fact but it's a great book in regard uh, to um uh this sort of um basically the limitations of physicalism and naturalism um in accounting for um consciousness truth beauty goodness and the way that these things are not parameters which are themselves selected for over the course of evolution but are rather this sort of transcendental horizon line that makes any act of perception and selection possible um so it's it's naturalism is putting the cart before the horse um, and, and even in its very definition, it's saying don't do metaphysics, but that proscription or ban on metaphysics is itself a metaphysical move. It's analogous to 
um, again, is that all, if there's one theme to all that I've been saying is that it fails into take it fails to take into account the self-referential nature of reality um, that that is God, and it, so it it runs afoul of of this this sort of um, uh, self-referential dynamic. There are pronouncements to the effect that there are no absolute truths which themselves must pretend to the status of an absolute truth, or you know there's a, there's a, a ban or a proscription on metaphysics. Which is itself going beyond physics, um, because it's not as if any scientific experiment ever told you to only do scientific experiments. Um, and so, yeah, there's 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 a lot here, and it, it gets into kind of old errors. You know, get get it going back to Descartes. Um, you know, Descartes before the horse, or I don't know, it just kind of entered my mind. But you know, it is to trace the 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 history of this sort of error it's it's quite um i'm not sure one could do a lot of tracing from my standpoint as someone who has add and doesn't read it's not really important um but but the thing is you know it's like work out your salvation and fear and trembling because it's the lord himself who works it in you i'm confident in that that last part god is working it out in you and um you know i'm christian universalist so i just think that you you're in the body of christ you've been elected from before the foundation of the world um and that um the atonement of jesus christ covers you um that's not really a thing that that you can you can uh get away from um you know the the ability to eternally separate yourself from god is not a power that that you have if you ever made that choice it would only ever be a uh, an uninformed choice, a less than fully informed choice, reflecting the fact that if you ever ended up separate from God, that would be a God thing, not a you thing. So um, uh, anyway, you know, that's just me like hitting you with my beliefs, but uh, uh, that's 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 what they are. That's me being a little bit arrogant and condescending uh, or risking coming across as that. I hope I don't actually, but um, no, no, I think, I think the, the point, I mean, I think you made, you know, you didn't come off condescendingly. It, and I, I appreciate you sharing your, your views and your viewpoint, because I, you know, I was especially interested in talking to you about what, you know, what it looked like to be a, a reformed atheist, you know, outside of, outside of all the other things that you hear, you know, um, one hears, not one hears, um, the, the, I don't know. I know As an atheist, up. I had I had a lot of understandings that I would I cannot and would not now repudiate. It was always God showing Himself to me. So I used to imagine a kind of big discontinuity between my atheist self and my like now theistic self, like a kind of a piecewise function. But the more time goes on, the more I realize that God was always in me. God was always showing Himself to me you know, principally in the form of the recognition that, you know, like say the most selfless love of which you're capable is, is what you ought to do. And, and, um, you know, you do, you do have a relationship with God. You do perceive God. You do know him. And not only that, but you're not just, the image of God is not something generic. You're, you're, it's not just that you're in the image of God means that this, the way in which you image God is the same way that I do. You're, you're uniquely in the image of God, and um, so so uniquely are you in the image of God that it's as if in creating you, God 
had something to say about himself that he couldn't say without creating you. That gets into one of these asymmetries that I was talking about, where the fact that to say God, God doesn't change. At some point, he incarnates himself. To me, logically, you should infer from that that he was always incarnate. But now follow it one step further. We're members of the body of Christ, as whom God was always internally incarnate. That means that there's a way in which your and my existence as the specific people that we are is logically necessary as facets of the, the ultimate identity of God. That's in Jesus. That's not because of any special status that we um, otherwise enjoy ourselves. But ultimately, see, these binaries, they, these dichotomies, they kind of disappear. They become revealed as, as, as incomplete, problematic. It, but in Jesus Christ, all the, um, the polarities, if you like, are harmonized and, and the seemingly irreconcilable differences reconciled. He's human and he's God. You know, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Jew nor Greek, um, and 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 so on, um, but but um, you know you are in relationship with God. You do know Him, and there is something that you have to say about God that only you understand. That's why He created you. There's is a, a way in which you are critical critical to God's own self understanding. You know that's why like Robert, Rabbi Manus Friedman, who was taking apart the idea that that God just created us despite not needing us. He was like he's like look. We were just minding our business not existing, and God created us. So who who really needed whom? Um, um, so, you know, uh, the fact that this tells me a lot. It tells me that you're extremely important to God. And and not only that, really, what it is, is it's incomprehensible to us. But, but the thing is, like, from God's perspective, each person is equally superlative. It's like there's, this is difficult to describe. It has to do with Nicholas of, of Cusa and, and, his, and his, his, his sort of apprehension of God as this kind of infinite. Uh, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I was thinking about uh, what Andrew Horanich said at the end of his um, our interview. He said, um, "God, you notice the uh, the sheep, the lost sheep of the nine. The, there's 99 sheep, and there's one that was lost." out of the hundred and it's not like that sheep was anything special it was just that it was his well i mean it's it's almost like in some ways yes in some ways the complete opposite where it's like see god for nicholas of Cusa, god perceives each person as though they were the only person and 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 um and it's somehow the case that god is perceiving each person like that simultaneously <laughs> So or God's experience is of is of perceiving each person as though they were the only person who exists. It's some kind of some kind of paradox, you know, in this kind of this kind, but you know, the more you study this theistic reality, the more you get comfortable with paradox. And the more you see, as Lane puts it, that ultimate reality is 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 always and everywhere a self-resolving paradox. Um, like, you know, one thing I used to get tripped up on is like if if God is this kind of infinite um uh, uh you know like this kind of slippery dialectical uh thingamajig and how is that a person until i realize that i myself in the same way in other words i can't offer some kind of exhaustive predication of myself that isn't falsified in the next moment if only in virtue of having predicated such a description of myself um and but i'm still a person in fact it's like 
the the notion of a person is so fundamental that you can't define it in terms of anything more fundamental than it. So there's a pretty good convergence, if you ask me, between sort of our understanding of, of infinity and our understanding of personhood. And 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 God is God is a person, uh, just as just as you and I are are, are persons. But um, the see now I you know I was getting on tangents and no one was wise enough to stop me. But um, you know that's you're no. talking about superlatives. Yeah. So 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 the thing is, it, it's like um, for each Nicholas of Cusa was just reasoning like God is infinite. So like. Um, uh, it's the case that you know he, he was always talking about this this figurine that seems to be looking at you no matter where you're standing in the room. That was kind of his jumping off point because he was imagining it's the same way with God. Where for as as far as, as like as as far as each of us is concerned, it's like from God's point of view, it's like um, he he only regard he regards each individual as though they were the only individual that exists. So there's like a way that 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 and see i had a i had a strange dream about this where where jesus and mary seemed to tell me that i was becoming advanced in a way of seeing where um everyone is is equally superlative in other words there was a sort of embedded joke in there which is don't don't think in terms of self-advancement here at all um because as far as god sees people he sees them as as equally superlative so there is, there's, if I just say, well, yeah, you, you're pretty important to God, but, you know, ultimately, if he had to lose you, that would just kind of suck, but he'd get over it. It's like, it's not really what it is. Like, he can't be all in all without you. There's truly something, because everything that you look at, this is, this is a mystery that I think about. Like, whatever you happen to be looking at, that is God. I mean, not, not, not simpliciter, um, not without some kind of qualification, but it's like, everything that is in god is god and and it has to be the case that everywhere god looks god sees himself and it also has to be the case that that every such moment of self-perception is in the nature of like a a, 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 a stupefying mystery god god is god is always god is always uh he's uh, we're running out of time I mean, he's always he's always mystified by his own existence. That's what I'm getting at. Okay. If I, Pete, if I may, before we close out. Yeah, yeah. How about closing thoughts, and then I have one more thing to say, and we're good. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I feel like I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like I learned a lot. Um, definitely things I'll, I'll continue to ponder, and I'll look into Christopher um, Lang, Lang and. Um, but I feel I feel like there. I, I'm looking forward to another future discussion. I feel like there's some things that I have I have felt that were left unresolved, um, particularly. And I'll and I'll list them out. And maybe we can think about them for next time. Um, not to continue on the metaphysical and ontological train, um, because I would like to get into you know more wor worldly things like morality and etc. But um, it seems it seems to me. Um, I feel I feel like in order to come to God, there has to be, and I may be just repeating myself, but there has to be that buy-in to absolutes. You know what I mean? And and I under and like I I've already said, I know we get into that that something nothing dichotomy. I know that's where it gets us. Um, but I feel like there there needs to be that buy-in and that contradiction that is seen 
between the absolute truths and how we act, I acknowledge that as well. Or the, or the not absolute truths and how we act, I acknowledge that as a, as a contradiction. You know, um, if, if good is an, or love is an, an absolute truth, why do I act the way I do? Why do, why do we carry on the way I do? I understand that as a contradiction. I, but I, I say, I don't know if action has to beget the app or, or has to follow the absoluteness of, of, a, of a truth. Um, it seems that I feel like in order to come to at least the Christian God, you have to have that, ex that experience. You have to have that, you know, um, and that may be something that others may not, may not have on a, on a metaphysical personal level. And the other thought I had is I, it's often said that God created us can, and I know that if God is within us and God is like, like in the example of consciousness, as God is consciousness, if consciousness is within all things, if God is within all things that he created us. But if we go back to John Wheeler in that perception piece, in a way, didn't we create God, you know? And, and I also think culturally we created God, but however, for the sake of, you know, the discussions of ontology, in a way we created God. Uh, so I guess those are my, my closing remarks and my thoughts about why I grapple with, even though I, I grapple with posits, I grapple with um, circular tautologies of, you know, it is, it is this thing because it is this thing. Like the idea of a person, the idea of personhood, I think it, at times is an illusion. And even though we are so bent on, I know I'm a person, there are, there are other people, this is the postmodern idea, who live in a reality that we, we may have an insight into their reality more than we do. For example, like we have a gentleman who thinks they're a glass of orange juice. I would say that maybe we have a better idea of his reality than he has of his own in a way. And in some ways we know, and in some ways he's more right than I am because he knows his reality. So, I mean, we fall into this, this trap, this postmodern trap, I guess to say that realities can't be entirely known. And you know what I'm saying? You can't be entirely known in those absolute truths just because if one says there aren't absolute truths is an absolute truth i don't feel makes that statement irrelevant even though it does logically kind of contradict itself i understand that so those are my thoughts maybe we can get into it next time um or we can drop it all together because it's a horse it's a horse that or a mule no, that I we mean, beat dead <laughs> no 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 it's true to you then it is it's it's, it's it, it's true then it is true and it, it needs to it needs to be explored further because mm -hmm. i mean you're... yeah i'm sorry peter no keep saying what you were saying finish your thought that, that's all um i i okay. it, it, that that there's not going to be you know like like luke always says it's like everything is personal so in other words the way god reveals himself is not in such a way where I can take the tokens of his self-revelation to me and turn it around in this, this public and objective way and prove to everyone else, hey, look, no, I've got the proof. It's not how he likes to operate. He does like to reveal himself to you in a unique and personal way. And that will involve um, working through the ideas that you've laid out. That's why, that's why we cannot ignore them, because they are true to you. Um, mm. uh, and... and um, I thought one thing I wanted to throw in there and what you said was, you know, we created God. And it's like, yeah, but you're, you got to remember the way in which he created us too. Uh, and close the, the, the sort of self-exciting circuit. 
and understand that actually, remember, God's not one person looking at us, it's we're looking at him, but he's the union of us knowing God, knowing God, knowing us, knowing God, et cetera. Um, and, um, um, but anyway, that, that's all. Wow, I'm really, this is really cool how this conversation turned out. I was not expecting this per se, but I love how you guys just took it and ran with it. And uh, that's kind of what I like about this podcast. I, I go into it with a very loose structure because I know that things never work out the way you want them to. And that's how life is, isn't it? Like, uh, so that's kind of the beauty of it though, uh, within a community and it's, you know, if we did have all the answers, then we wouldn't have the connections with one another. We wouldn't need other people, right? We, uh, we wouldn't need others. We would, uh, we would just be gods to ourselves in that sense. And that would be actually hell actually. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, that gets into idolatry and self-idolatry and how that has a lot to do with hell. But anyway, um, I was gonna make a joke about uh, two two speech therapists and a, and a OT walk into a bar, something like that. <laughs> and then I was thinking, um, um, two Christians and a and an atheist walk into a bar. And you know, it's funny; those two two analogies are totally different in that, like, speech are it's not like speech therapists and OTs are pit are pitted against each other. On the contrary, they're actually working together in harmony. But oftentimes. Christians and atheists are pitted against each other. But what if we saw them as working together, bouncing ideas off each other? And that's the, that plays right into the idea of the fellow traveler. And we're not opponents, but we are rather working, walking side by side on this journey of life, the spiritual journey. Whether you see it as a metaphysical spiritual journey or uh, whatever, whatever kind of spiritual journey you see it as. But yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely, I think going forward, We'll definitely, the three of us, maybe another, get together again, talk more about what you those topics you were bringing up, Chris. And then I'd like to have an interview with each of you individually and get more into the, the um, onto planet Earth level discussion. Because this, this brought us up to the, the galaxies and the solar systems, <laughs> but we can come back to Earth in our conversations individually going forward. Well, I'll be listening. So, yeah, thank, thank you so you much for hosting this. Yeah, Absolutely, thank you, thank you so much. Now it was great, great meeting you the first time. It's a, it's uh, a pleasure and... meeting you as well. I, 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 I want, to, I want to emphasize that, and um, I do tend, I do have a tendency to talk a lot, and I appreciate you guys hearing me out. But I want to say it was, it was, a, it was a great pleasure. I think you're extremely articulate, and um, like I said, there's, 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 there's a way in which you uniquely image God. Something he had to say about himself, he couldn't say without creating you. So. It's a great honor um, and privilege to meet you and, and God bless you. You as well. Thank you Amen. so much. And thank you okay. for, for espousing all of this uh, intellect onto me. I mean, you you too, incre incredibly uh, intellectual and, and thoughtful and caring with your words. So I really, I really appreciate you, the way your mind works. And it better helps me understand your perspective as well as uh, per perhaps the Christian perspective as well. So thank you for, for everything. And great meeting you as well. Cal is a beautiful mind. That's all I can say. He's yeah, on a different plane of existence. <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are too kind. All right. Peace. So long. Thanks, y'all. Well, let me let me stop the recording. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath It's not an easy path 
but I'm willing to trust, though I'm dying in the dust.